In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to this, our fourth episode of the second series. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And we're continuing with our themes of light and darkness. We really enjoyed doing the one last week talking about the the lighthouses and the lighthouse family. Yeah, the Stevensons, Liz, that's right. And we'll, we'll continue with that this, this week, just going a little bit deeper into some of the people associated with them. Yeah, because, I mean, these lighthouses really capture the imagination. There's so many stories about them and the lighthouse keepers that looked after the lamp and kept it burning. So one in particular that we're going to talk about today, but if you think about it, you know, the lives that these people were leading, you know, being isolated in these most exposed of places, it's little wonder that there's all these stories associated with the lighthouses. Yes, a real mystery, because even this, the locations that they were in were kind of mysterious. Even today with fully automatic lighthouses and no keepers, their locations and to see these lighthouses, it is a scene of mystery. And romance, yeah, oh. it wouldn't be very romantic when you were there. But just imagine, you know, that you've got all these, you're perched on rocks that have brought ships crashing to the depths of the ocean, all these lost souls. And then imagine if beyond that, you're actually built on the site of what was thought to have been a witch's coven. And that's exactly what it was up at Tarbert Ness and Tain, up in the highlands of Scotland, where legend has it that the lighthouse there was built on a site that had previously been a meeting place for witches. Now, there's no evidence of that, but they do know that there was probably a Roman fort there, so maybe some of the, the souls of the Roman soldiers that were there. But um, certainly this lighthouse was built out of tragedy because there had been a number of ships that were uh, lost in a storm in the Moray Firth in 1826, and so quite a spooky, atmospheric place to be alone with your light. Oh, that would really set the imagination racing, wouldn't it? And of course, you know, we we talked a wee bit about the Stevensons and the lighthouse builders, but they kept very much in touch with their lighthouse keepers, didn't they? And so they, they were aware of all the stories associated with them. Yeah, I think there's a nice story associated with Kinnaird Head which is uh, the first lighthouse to be built. And we talked about how it was built on the site of a castle and then a tower added. But um, the first 
lighthouse keepers that were there. I think it's interesting to think that these were old men. You know, they'd had a previous career. They were mariners. They had shipwrights. And and then they went out to these conditions to keep the lamp burning uh, right through come hail or high water, as they say. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't to escape their wives and families because they often went with them, didn't they? Yeah, interesting one with that because one of the first lighthouse keepers, George Gray at Kinnaird Head, um, Stevenson on one of his visits, he noticed that the light wasn't being kept quite to its normal standards. That was hard work. And when he inquired a wee bit more, he found out that it wasn't actually George. It was the wife that was looking after not only the family and her husband, but also keeping the light burning as well. So that was the start of when Stevenson recognised that there needed to be two lighthouse keepers um, to make sure that the light was kept burning at all times. Yes, because at those days, keeping the light burning meant heaving coal around to you know, to get the fire going at one time and then get the electricity going and the gas light. So there was a lot of hard work and a lot of steps and stairs. So this poor woman who was looking after her husband and family, plus doing all that hard manual work, I take my hat off to her. Yeah, but uh, I think it, it's, you know, you were talking about Stevenson building a good relationship George Grey actually named one of his sons after Stevenson, Stevenson Grey. So, you know, there's all the evidence from letters that they had a very good relationship while George Grey was keeping Stevenson's lamp alight. Yes, and, and Stevenson, as well as doing that, was fighting or was speaking on the light, the keeper's behalf to the Northern Lighthouse Board to say, look, these men need a healthy pension as well. So he was working on their behalf all the time. Yeah, because no old age pension in those days. <laughs> no, no. Or now, Liz, I sometimes isn't. <laughs> you have to wait for really old age to get it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And talking about that, we just I've just reached it. But never mind, that's another well, that's story. that's another story for another day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we're talking about how hard conditions were for these lighthouse keepers and their families, but just imagine how much tougher it got during wartime. Oh, yes. And the stories associated with you know, what was happening around the lighthouses in World War Two. And I think the Fair Isle North during World War Two, um, they had a real a double tragedy. The 22 year old wife of the assistant keeper was killed by a German machine gun fire as she stood at her pantry window. And that was tragic enough. But two days later, they came back. The, the airplanes, the German airplanes came back. And the principal keeper's wife and daughter were both killed. And a, and a soldier who was manning the guns to you know, keep the planes away was killed. So it was not just dangerous from the water roundabout, but dangerous from the skies at that time. And if you think that some of these lighthouses were in most strategic waters in Scotland, you know, they were in particular danger. There's about 30 attacks from German planes, the Luftwaffe, during World War II. And they even set up guns in place on the lighthouses. So there was another task for the poor old lighthouse keeper or his wife to go up and man these guns if the Luftwaffe were flying overhead. And especially, as you say, in the strategic positions like Shetland and Sunborough Head, they, they had a real serious role to play during the war. Yeah, we've got American cargoes coming in, um, bringing all the armaments that they had to protect them. So, yeah, really important. Loch Ryan, um, one of the lighthouses at Cairn Ryan on the crossing over to Ireland, the Liberty ships used to come through that passage there. And uh, so... 
they were bringing the ammunition to the theatre of war in World War Two, and the, the lighthouse had an important role to play there. Yes, and some of our our listeners from the U.S., our friends from the U.S., they they'll be aware that that's where the American troop ships were landed because it became too dangerous in the the Clyde. That was a much safer place at Loch Ryan. Yeah, so you know they would witness wreckage from ships that had been destroyed during the war but they had some other interesting cargoes as well and um, the lighthouse keeper on the Pentland Skerries lighthouse um, when he found uh, an East German cargo ship in 1965 it was on its way from Cuba and it was supposed to have been carrying sugar but the word goes out that when local fishermen got to the packages that in amongst the sugar there were actually nuclear weapons being smuggled as well so that was hushed up and kept quiet kept quiet and then again in 1866 the all the gold 3000 pounds worth of gold was washed ashore on the west coast of Scotland these were all you know these things happening around the lighthouses and things happening there and then i like the helicopter one in 1978 liz the helicopter was going out to airlift a, an injured lighthouse keeper from one of the lighthouses but the weather was dreadful and the helicopter ended up falling out of the sky the rotor blade broke off and it was injured so it couldn't take the injured man but they got the pilot out that was fine so they summoned a second helicopter and the lighthouse keepers this is the skills that they had the lighthouse keepers used the ropes to to tie down the broken helicopter so that it could be then airlifted by the second helicopter along with the injured people. And they had to be very careful that they tied the ropes absolutely evenly so that the helicopter weight was completely balanced when it was being airlifted by its second helicopter. Now, that skill as well, it wasn't just switching on the light, it was all the other skills that were required. You're talking about 1978 there, Helen. In 1982, at Killintringan Lighthouse, which is down in Galloway in the south of Scotland, there they were witness to a terrible accident where the ship's crew had set the ship onto autopilot and then they'd fallen asleep. And so as they watched, the lighthouse keeper saw that the boat was knocked onto the, the rocks. It was broken up. And when they actually found what it was carrying, it was hazardous material. So the whole area had to be cordoned off and the lighthouse keepers evacuated. So still stories being made to this day. One of the other stories that I really thought was quite amusing, pretty awful at the same time, was when keepers at, at Doof Artak uh, Lighthouse in the Hebrides, the Inner Hebrides, looked out and saw a bloated elephant and two mules in the water. And it was assumed that these were circus animals which were being, had been lost being transported to America. What a sight. Yeah, imagine getting up in the morning and looking out to see what wreckage was floating past you. I mean, obviously ships during the war, but they also, the, the lighthouse keeper on the Isle of May, when he got up, he saw debris floating past in in 1879 from the, the Tay Railbridge disaster. So yeah, they, you're always looking out to see what's going on in the world. Never a dull moment, as they say. Yep, so these, all these stories that we've been talking about, the material 
we got was from a fantastic new book that's been published. It came out in 2021 to mark Scotland's year of stories, but it's called For the Safety of All, and it's written by Donald S. Murray, who comes from the Isle of Lewis. He was brought up in the shadow of the Butt of Lewis lighthouse, and it's a fantastic book, and I think that um, you know anybody that's interested in these stories, it's well worth having a look at that. But also, I came across a podcast, and this puts us to shame, Helen. Oh. This is how you should do it. Oh dear. This is a podcast by two, uh, Annie and Jenny, and it's Stories of Scotland on a Patreon. And uh, you can find it at Stories of Scotland, but my goodness, they're professionals, Helen. Oh dear. Well, we, we'll, we'll just continue blethering, Liz, I think. Yeah, we're, we're silver surfers. Yes. We skim over the surface of things, given a wee bit about everything. So we're... <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll scrape the, scrape the surface. What is it they say? Jack of all trades, That's master of none. We've absolutely. But you couldn't possibly do an episode on this without the main um, mystery that surrounds it today, which is the story of what happened on the Flannan Isles. Oh, yeah, and it really, it would, Agatha Christie couldn't, couldn't do better than this. It's just really quite a story. Quite tragic as well, though. Yeah, but it's poignant because it's this time of year because yes. it was December that all of this happens. Perhaps you should explain what the Flannan Isles are, first of all. Yes, the Flannan Isles are a small group of islands in the Outer Hebrides. and they, They're situated about 20 miles west of Lewis. So I think west of Lewis, that's going right out into the Atlantic. So they're really remote. And the principal one is Elan Moor, which means the big island, obviously. And they all have a unique identity, these little islands. At the moment, it's 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 uninhabited, but it wasn't always so. The farmers of of Lewis used to take their sheep over there to graze because apparently the grazing was very very good. They went over there once a year to to fleece the sheep and to bring them back and to kill sea fowls for food and for their feathers because the sea fowls had wonderful down. But they also the sheep seemed to thrive on the grazing on Flannel Isles, on Elan Moor. And I had a wee smile to myself when I was looking at this, Liz, because at about the same time, uh, doctors on the mainland were beginning to send people up to Pitlochry for their health. And I'm thinking, was this the farmer sending the sheep over to the Flannel Islands? You know, is it the 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 sheep's equivalent of Pitlochry <laughs> in Scotland? <laughs> yeah. But then the practice ended in the 1970s when they found it really wasn't economical to take the sheep all the way over there to graze and then bring them all the way back. Yep. But these Flannan Isles were particularly dangerous to shipping and they were known as the Seven Hunters. They had taken so many vessels. So it was decided in 1899 that they should build a lighthouse on Elan Moor. And David Allen Stevenson was the Stevenson tasked with doing this, along with his brother, Charles Alexander. And they constructed it, uh, um, the Northern Lighthouse, under the control of the Northern Lighthouse Board. And it opened in 1899. But shortly after that is the greatest mystery in the stories of the Scottish lighthouses, and it happened in December 1900. This lighthouse that was built by the Stevensons was given a three-man crew because it was so extreme, so difficult to get to, such difficult conditions to work in. So it was a three-man team with a floating fourth man who was on shore. Not exactly floating, Liz. 
He wasn't floating. No. He was just like <laughs> he was a bad, bad terminology. <laughs> yeah. I hope he wasn't floating. No. He a relief, was, he was, a relief man. Yeah, relief. That's the best, better word to use, Helen. <laughs> yes, he was relief back on shore. So they rotated this. So the three the three men had gone out. They were there on the Planel Isles, manning the the lighthouse. But one night, a, a ship going over from Philadelphia to Leith outside Edinburgh noticed that the light was not working. That was on the 15th of December. And when they got to Leith, which was three days later, of course, they passed this word on to the Northern Lighthouse Board that something was amiss. So the Northern Lighthouse Board sent out the, the tender Hesperus to see if they could do something but because the weather was still very very poor the Hesperus didn't in fact get away until a bit a few days later and arrived on the island on Boxing Day the 26th of December. Now that's sort of about seven days a week after it was first noticed the light was out but when the crew got there what a surprise they got Liz. You've got to imagine, you know, that this is 1900, you know, these seas in the middle of winter, you know, and above all else, the whole raison d'etre of these lighthouse keepers is to keep this lantern burning, you know, to keep warning. So, you know, for this light to be out, what on earth has happened? So you can imagine that it was some trepidation that the rescue party arrived on Boxing Day and the ship's captain, Jim Harvey, the first thing he did was to sound his horn and set up a flare because, you know, if a, a relief ship was coming, then normally the lighthouse keepers would come down to the, the pier to help unload supplies and to, to meet with the people. And yet nobody appeared. You know, so they thought, oh, there's something terribly wrong here. We'll have to send somebody ashore. Yes, and when they got ashore, the first thing that alarmed the people was there was no boxes that were normally the lighthouse keepers would have had all their the stuff that they needed to go back to the mainland would be sitting on the pier. There was nothing there, and they walked up. The first man went away up the 160 steps up to the lighthouse. The gate was open. The door of the lighthouse was closed, but he went in into the living quarters Nothing was here. It was a bit like the Marie Celeste, you know, the the ship that they found with nobody on board. The table was set for a meal. The beds were as they had been slept in. There was just, you know, something was amiss. So he went back down to the ship and reported this. And they sent more people over to have a look. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, the stories have grown over the years. Oh, they yes. say that there was big black birds oh, sitting with their right. beady eyes and the only thing that was alive was a canary that was singing in its its cage. But it was a complete mystery. And most mysterious of all, the lighthouse keepers' waterproofs, their oilskins, two of them were not there. But the third set were, which meant that the third lighthouse keeper had gone out without even taking the time to put on his lighthouse, uh, to put on his waterproofs. Yes, it's, it was just and quite eerie for these people looking at it. And these were the men who were there on the island, you know, taking the first look around, were used to lighthouse keeping, used to remoteness. They must have been quite scared. They eventually came across complete wreckage from storm storm wreckage at one point but 
Yeah, there was nothing very much on the east coast, but when they went yeah. over to the west coast, there was evidence that there had been a huge storm. You know, things had been smashed up, a supply box had been smashed open, and the valuable content, you know, if you think of all the ropes and the equipment inside it, had been strewn across the ground, and uh, some of it was down below, about 100 feet below. Um, so it really was evidence that there had been a, a terrible storm. It had even ripped up the turf on the top of the cliffs, 200 feet above sea level. So imagine the size of these waves and the winds that must have been lashing the island. But the one thing that I thought was just shows you the importance of the lighthouse, Liz, that in amongst all this kind of you know, chaos and tragedy, that three of the men sort of left the search to others and went up to tend to the light and can you know, just you make sure the light was back on and that the ships outside in the in the waters would be safe. And they continued to surf over over search over a couple of days, still found nothing. Yeah, they never found the men that or the bodies of the men. And so you can imagine all the conspiracy theories were rife. They'd been taken by aliens, they'd been murdered. Yeah, you know, it, it hit the, the headlines, but the official verdict was that the poor fellows had been lost to drowning you know they'd been blown away but you know I think I visited as, as you have as well Helen going out to the Western Isles there's now an exhibition there mm-hmm. and um, one of the lighthouse keepers had been fined um, a few weeks before because he hadn't kept the equipment in in proper working order so you can imagine that they were put under such pressure that they did they go out thinking oh my goodness you know, the, the ropes are not tied down, you know, we've got to look after them and they've gone out to try. And then perhaps the one that was left behind saw a huge wave coming and rushed out without putting on his, his oil skins to try and warn the two other keepers. We'll never know. We'll never know. There's lots of conspiracy because the, the chap who had been warned about not keeping the equipment was fined five shillings, which you know, would say, well, phew, five shillings but that was a huge amount of money in those days so that they just had a family man was losing that amount of money in 1900 was you know he had to do something so out he went but I think the conspiracy theories are are quite fascinating Liz. Yeah I mean one of them was that one of the men was in debt so the three of them staged their own disappearance they left the island by boat to escape the debt Um, and sea serpents came into it as well so a lot of conspiracy theories around it but I think the reason just genuine tragedy for whatever reason they had gone out to try and keep this lamp burning. And what some of these theories could be discounted because they they kind of say, well, the personalities of one of the lighthouse keepers was such that he 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 may have murdered the others and then jumped into the water himself. But part of the, if you like, the recruitment process for lighthouse keepers was to ensure that they had the right personality, the right attitude, that they could sort of remain on these isolated places, quite close proximity to you know, just two other people. So I think very easily discounted. Yeah, I couldn't help thinking when I was reading that, Helen, that if you were stuck in a lighthouse for a month on end with me, you'd be jumping into the water as oh, well. Actually, come to think of it, Liz. <laughs> I might be pushing you. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, I think it needed a particular type of personality. Yes, and, and I think that, 
you know, eventually they have they have you know, come to the conclusion that it was just a freak accident that took all of them. For the relief lighthouse keeper, um, he had he was supposed to be on the lighthouse and had been sick and so had been replaced. But it was him that went and saw, you know, was the first to witness mm-hmm. this strange occurrence and, and the disappearance. So, you know, a terrible event for him and for all the families. And this is another feature of the lighthouses that, you know, some of them are onshore and the families can live with the the lighthouse keeper but for others you know their their husbands are going away for weeks on end and they're a very close community and that's where this exhibition has been built to commemorate um, this disaster yes where they where they in a, a bilingual exhibition presumably that's gallic and english at the community yes. center and huge amount of documents and stills of they've got there to help us try to understand the life of the lighthouse keeper and also the mystery and the tragedy. Yep, and again, you know, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, with her role with the Northern Lighthouse Board, she was the one that opened the exhibition in October 2019. And it's volunteers that uh, staff the the um, exhibition. You, it's not always open, but you can get it open by special request. And it's fascinating, you know, when you see all the drawings and the documents and just get an insight into the life of these people who um, who had the task of keeping others safe. Yeah, and also within the exhibition, Liz, if you remember, you've got copies of the original drawings of David Allen Stevenson, you know, of, of how the lighthouse was to be built. So they're going right back to the to the rock and the stones, and then through the whole of the years of the lighthouse until it was automated, including this this mystery, this straightforward. But I think by the time the museum is here, they have just accepted the mystery is not a mystery, it's a freak accident. Yep. And again, when you speak to the people who are, are volunteering, you know, they're very keen that you, you realise that you have to remember that three keepers lost their lives yeah. and that the families remained on in the community. So this was a, a huge impact on a very, very small community. The, the deaths of Thomas Marshall, James Ducat, who left a, a widow and four children, and Donald MacArthur, who left a widow and two children. So, um, you know, these are... This is at the heart of it, you know, that we had the loss of these. Yeah. And there's a, a beautiful little um, statue memorial just along from the exhibition as well in Briascleet. Um, and it's, it's, it's a granite rock with a bronze wave coming over it. Mm, yes, absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. But, you know, these men were, were doing their job right to the last minute because when James Moore is right, Joseph Moore is writing, at the end, you're seeing what actually happened. The assistant light keeper, he's saying that the light room where everything was in proper order, the lamp was cleaned. These men had done their job right up to thing. And we went to shore and proceeded to the light room and lighted the light in proper time that night and every night since. So when they got there, the light was out. They went up and lit the light, but it was in perfect order for them to do that. So, so many stories associated with these lighthouses. And as I say, you can follow up and, uh, and, and look. I mean, and there's so much has been based on the Flannan Isles mystery. We've had even an opera 
um, on Peter Maxwell Davis wrote an opera called The Lighthouse, which was based on it. And we've had one of the episodes of Doctor Who, um, where there was... Um, they were abducted by aliens, which was based on it as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, plenty of stories. And Genesis, Genesis, this. the rock group, they uh-huh. wrote and recorded The Mystery of Flannel Isle Lighthouse in 1968. So it's opera, pop groups, everything all coming in. And one of my favourite authors, Peter May, oh, yes. it was featured in The Coffin Road, yes. um, which is one of his. And uh, another of my favourite, we've talked about him before, Gerard Butler, um, and Peter Mullen, two Scottish actors, um, they were, it was the subject of a film called The Vanishing. So it captures the imagination. It does. I think that's exactly what happened. The Vanishing. So in this season where lights are appearing in windows, candles everywhere, um, we've had a little reflection on lighthouses <laughs> and some of the stories associated with them, but plenty more um, to be delved into there. So word of the week, Helen, you're thinking of words around light and um, you know keeping a light in the darkness. You can just imagine the light shining out as twilight or dusk begins to fall. And of course, in Scotland, the word for that is the gloaming. You know, you've probably heard the song Roman in the gloaming. So gloaming or gloaming is twilight or dusk. Yes, and, and of course, the lights were very important to be shining out through the gloaming. And my word, Liz, is not normally associated with lighthouses as such, but as a word for a lamp or the the lamp lighter. It's the word leery, L-E-E-R-I-E. And some of our, our listeners will be aware of Robert Louis Stevenson of the Stevenson family, who was the author and poet. And he wrote a wonderful poem called The Lamp Lighter, where he talks about the leery. He just wants to grow up and be a leery, not a lighthouse builder. He wants to light the lights. I think it's a really evocative word, doesn't it? You know, I love, you think of Leary, yeah. but Ch- Robert Louis Stevenson's child book, child book of verse. You know, you just get this picture of you know a foggy, cold night coming round. You know, in the gloaming yes. and um, lighting up these gas lights and giving people safety and light to find their way home, just like the lighthouses do. That's right. So this is our last episode before Christmas, Helen. Yes, and you're totally ready, Liz? Well, as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> uh, but we're going to do a little episode. We always do just a little impromptu one um, in in Twixmas, yes. um, halfway between Christmas and New Year, where we'll just reflect on our Christmas and look forward to the New Year. Um, so that'll be coming out on the Tuesday between Christmas and the New Year. Yeah. So we'd like to wish all our listeners a very, very Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to all of you. Have a wonderful time. And I suppose an opportunity to thank. I mean, when we started Series 2 up again, I was I was the doubting Thomas. You I thought, were. People will never come back again, Helen. You know, we've lost it. It's gone. But you have, bless your hearts. You've come back in numbers. And for some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> I really don't know why. We've even done a little bit on social media as well, and little being the operative word, a little bit on social media. And thank you for coming back to that as well. Yeah, I've been dreadful. I will pick up. I will pick up on that again. It's just it's getting the the cogs turning and oh, um, yes. getting back into it again. But uh, coming into the months of the before we start the guiding again later in the year, we we will be reliable and we'll get back to a normal service. Ooh, that's but, a big um, big big promise, Liz. <laughs> anyway, thank you all very much indeed. Happy Christmas. Mm-hmm.
And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.